Welcome to the Medicinergy podcast. I'm Imogen, a 17-year-old A-level student here to bring you the best people with knowledge and insight on how to get into med school, how to become a doctor and help you decide whether a career in medicine is for you. I'm here today with here who is current who's recently transitioned out of clinical practice into a full-time job within health tech and works at Medishout which we'll hear more about later. Hey here, it's great to have you on the podcast. Hi Imogen, thank you so much for having me. It's actually been a, a long time. We've been trying to plan this for a while, but it's great to finally be on the podcast. Yeah, definitely. It's great to have you on here and to talk about some of these really important things to do with medicine. So why did you apply to medicine initially? What was your first kind of thoughts when you applied? I think this is a question that every applying medical student will get asked. It's probably the first question you'll get asked in your interview. And I think it's really important to take myself back to when I was 16, 17, um, what I did was I found myself as, as, you know, I did science subjects which I quite liked. I enjoyed biology. I don't think there's an aspect of doing a course that aligns with what you enjoy in school. Um, so that pushed me towards a medical field. And I think if you're in a school and you're reasonably smart, I think, you know, people look at medicine as an option that you should do. It's a career option that often brings a lot of value externally. You're helping people. And I think that's the essence of medicine. And for someone who was in school and wanted to please teachers, family, um, and also, you know, aligned with this is a good profession. This is something that smart people do. This is something that will bring value to not only yourself, but others. And it'll be a job that you have for the rest of your life. At 17, I was a bit naive. And I thought, actually, you know, that's important. And it wasn't as if money was, you know, not talked about back then. It still was. I remember going to my open days and people did quite rightly say, you know, you don't go into medicine for the money. If you want to go into, for a job for the money, go into investment banking or something like that. But again, you know, I was 17, I was good at sciences, I was good at most A-levels, and I was like, well, this is what I'm going to do. And I didn't really think too much about it. I went to work experience and I enjoyed what they were doing. I, you know, I saw surgeons in, in operating theatres, I saw pediatricians, and I was like, well, actually, this is nice. You're using your science, you're using your knowledge, and you're, you're helping people. And, and everyone was smiling. And, 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 you know, you come out of this work experience thinking this is what I'm going to do. So that's probably why I applied to medicine initially. And as you get older, I think you understand that you come out of the bubble of school where people are just you know, going to school, doing their subjects and then going home. And you realize there's an actual adult life out there. Uh, things actually matter. Money actually matters. Taxes matter. Having a life that you want to live matters. And, and, and you know, what I enjoy is probably going to be different to what someone else enjoys. And what you do in your job is really important. That it aligns with what you enjoy as a person. And this is where the conflict really starts. Um, and we can touch on that a bit later, but I think, you know, to answer your question, that's why I applied to medicine initially. And the, the reason I finished medicine, even though I was having these, these thoughts, is probably because I'm, like many, many doctors, we're not really people that like to fail. Once we start seeing it through and, you know, we don't get a lot of time in medicine to really reassess where you're at, where your values are at. You sort of finish medical school, you're straight in through a training program, and at least historically, you're straight through until you're a consultant and then, you know, hopefully the grass is greener at that point. Now things are changing, people are thinking, but at least when I was going through medical school, that's not an awfully long time ago either. It was very much a tunnel vision to the end. Right. Okay. And I think all of those are very common reasons to go into medicine. Like we want to help people, you're good at it. And it is a natural path. You're like, well, these are the A-levels I'm doing. I quite like sciences and it's a fairly natural route. But then as you say, 
there is an adult life you've got to lead at the same time and whether that aligns with what you're doing at the time and it's interesting you said about work experience how everyone was smiling because a lot of people mm. say that work experience was the thing that made them really go for medicine as opposed to other sciencey things but for mm. me maybe it's just where I live but for me I wouldn't say that you know the doctors I've seen are super smiley obviously they're under pressure and they've got lots of stuff to do but I it's interesting you've said that because not everyone says that the doctors they saw before and obviously you've gone through med school now as well you you I don't hear that everyone has an an experience of super super happy smiley doctors that's interesting yeah, I think it's really interesting you bring up that point I think it depends what sort of vested interest that people at your work experience have I guess I was introduced as a you know motivated student who wants to do medicine and I was meeting people who were consultants who are you know at the very end of the game working in large teaching hospitals in London so very very accomplished people that I was shadowing and you know at that point they have worked their whole life to get to this point so they're going to be proud of their accomplishments and they want to show off those accomplishments if I was shadowing the new S1 you know the new junior doctor the new SHO the new houseman things probably would be different and I think unfortunately based on my connections or where I ended up in work experience it gave me a skewed perception of medicine what I didn't realize is the people that I was actually shadowing were, you know, 20, 25 years into their career, and this is their true passion. And they never had to really think otherwise about all the current problems that exist in the NHS. They just followed their love of medicine, and the NHS aligned really well parallel to that. And now I think you'll find that there's a huge difference. You know, if you talk to a junior doctor now, they'll probably still say they have a huge passion for medicine, but it's the system that they're finding very, very difficult to align with. Right. I didn't get that from my work experience, unfortunately. That's really interesting. So once you're once they're kind of established in their career, then it's all right. But as you say, the new people have different things going on, different struggles. So that's a really good point to to mention there. But also, let's go back to your time at med school and keep it positive. Let's go back to your time at med school. <laughs> so you went to UCL. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. What, just explain briefly what the course structure was like there and how you found it. Okay. Yeah, no, sorry. I will try and keep this um, positive. But Nick, my experience of UCL was actually really good. I, I loved it. You know, I had a great, it's a six-year course. Um, it was one of those places that historically you can leave. So, you know, I know now uh, you do a, a five years of medicine, you tend to do an intercalated bachelor's or master's, and there's become much, much more of a migration of students, you know, to and from other universities. So you can really pick a, a course in the middle that really aligns with what you want. But UCL will give you an option about 2025, and in your third year, um, you've done two years of preclinical medicine and the third year you do that integrated bachelor's degree uh, which I did in psychology I thought that was quite interesting and it's, it tends to be a bit more of a chilled out year um, you know you're away from medicine you're away from hospitals and you, you get a year out and then you go into fourth fifth and sixth year which are just uh, pretty heavy clinical medicine and the way the course is structured is, is a very traditional way you know first two years large lecture theatres mostly book work few lab work very very few patients I mean I genuinely can't remember how many patients we saw, but it was probably one or two each year. And then in fourth and fifth year, you're fully immersed again through all your different rotations. Um, you spend a little bit of time in all the departments and you have a few types of cases you're meant to see. You know, if you go on your cardiology placement, you're meant to see a, a patient with heart failure, a patient with a heart attack and so on and so on. That way you, you, you build on that free clinical knowledge that you have with all these patient case studies. And then your final year is a beautiful year, really, because... Uh, by that point actually the exams then that's it it's just a pass or fail you don't have to rank a certain way it doesn't determine your future job 
and then you get to go on an elect at the end of it, which is brilliant because you've finished your final exams, you've passed, and now you get to spend 10 weeks. And often, you know, people go abroad and and it's great because you're done, you're a doctor, but you don't have to actually have any of the pressures of working as a doctor. So really good um, degree, really good structure. I think the, the great thing about UCL is you're in the centre of London, you're right off Oxford Street, you're going to be integrated with people from all different courses. Uh, because, you know, as opposed to some medical schools, UCL itself is a huge university. Um, and I think that's great because it's, it's full of societies and full of like things to do. And, and you're in the heart of London, which means, you know, in terms of going out and having a life, you get full exposure to one of the best cities in the world. So and, and living in the heart of it is something that very few people can ever really do. So, you know, you're right in the middle of it for six years. You're in some of the best hospitals as well. And in terms of potentially research and, and working with professors who have done so so well it really has a great balance as a university and I genuinely have very very good memories and made very good friendships out of that place. Well that's really good to hear it's, it's nice to hear that there it was good at, at medical school and I have been to UCL not for an official open day but kind of like a just with college open day and as you say it's right in the centre of London and if you're used to living you know in the middle of nowhere like me it's probably quite nice to get a different feel being in the city and so UCL is BMAT yes yes so yes. UCL is BMAT and I'm sure a lot of the other universities that are BMAT or that you applied to a kind of um, pre-clinical clinical split so one of the favorite questions I love to ask on the podcast is when you finally did get around to clinical um, exposure and clinical experience what was the most gory story you yeah. saw in the placement um, I think I think two two things really stick out to me, and and you do tend to see some you know your fair share of horror stories as, as a medical student, and um, one of them is always going to be you know we had a patient who had who, who was an alcoholic, and and sometimes when you drink a lot of alcohol, you're very prone to having bleeds, and we were called to an arrest call. So an arrest call is where this patient is very very sick. You need all the doctors, all the anaesthetists to come and really try and stabilize this patient because otherwise they're going to die pretty imminently. And what had happened was because of his drinking habits, he developed varices and he'd bled. He'd had a massive vomitous bleed, and he was sitting in his bed covered in like foul red blood. And it was you know one of those things where when you see this patient, you're never going to take that image out of your own head. And this is like seven, eight, nine years ago. I still can picture that patient. Um, to a T, really gory, and you're just like, what do you do? And I, I think that really stuck with me, not only because, oh my God, you know, medicine can be so gory or so, so horrible, you know, but also just like the doctors then have to change. You, you know, often in medicine, you do have a bit of time. You have time to think, you have time to really plan, but this is a different type of thinking. You have to be so quick. You have to really act there and then. And as much as we practice this, there's an art to being so quick and being able to deal with patients who you know only have minutes and every single second will make a big difference and that was probably one of my most gory stories that I've seen but also really remarkable to see how the doctors acted in that fashion systematically to revive that patient so thankfully the patient did survive uh, but a bit of a tough thing to see as a fourth year medical student. Yeah I can imagine I mean I love asking this question I mean obviously the actual story behind these poor patients is terrible but you know hearing these things it kind of opens your eyes to the nasty things you can see but then as you say seeing them systematically 
clean everything up, get it all sorted, getting them back to relatively stable is it's just really impressive that we can do that. And even, you know, while I was talking to someone the other day, like 50 years ago, a lot of the patients you see now would would die. And it's really sad, mm. but it's just amazing how far we've come and the things we can do like that and solve these gory stories is is really interesting, definitely. Yeah, I think longevity is amazing. It's a huge part of medicine. We've really been able to extend the length of life and, and and hopefully also the quality of life as well yeah yeah definitely it's, it's on it's on that way isn't it it's getting it's getting definitely. better and better and so now you're you've transitioned really recently out of <coughs> clinical practice out of the nhs so what mm. were the main factors that made you leave or either either pushing you out of the nhs or pulling you more into health tech okay um i mean i think this is probably there's probably a few nuances to this question so what were the factors that really made me think about leaving? I think as a doctor, um, I enjoy my job. I still enjoy my patients. I still got a lot of passion for that. And I still do practice every now and then, but it's just not in a so-called training post. And most people, what you find is that as a finished medical school, it's quite natural to have your F1, F2. By the end of medical school, you will know where you're going for your foundation years as a junior doctor. Um, and then you come to the end of your foundation year. And then that's probably when you start to really think about what route in medicine do you want to go down? Do you want to be a surgeon? Do you want to be a general practitioner? Do you want to be a medical consultant? And I think that's when people normally take some, what is called as an F3, but it's a year out of medicine. It's a non-training year. And that's where you start to think about what's important to you. Um, you know, for, for many people, it's a year to travel. And then it's becoming really common to go to Australia and New Zealand. For other people, it's time to get a bit of money, you know, and you can locum. And then when you're a locum doctor, you're often paid a lot more, but you have no job security and you pick and choose your shifts. And, and that's a great way to get a bit of money because I think what you find is people are about 25, 26, 27 at this sort of age. And that's when life starts to really happen. That's when you want to think about maybe, you know, uh, buying a house, uh, maybe people in relationships and thinking about getting married. And, and and these sort of questions are starting to pop up in people's heads. You know, how can we align what we do as a work with what we enjoy as, as people? And I think you've developed as a person enough to know what really interests you. And this year is a great year to figure out what you want to do. And I think that was probably when the penny dropped for me a little bit. I was looking at a career in oncology and I was looking at a career in oncology in central London. And I say these two things because whatever path you pick, there's going to be some opportunity for some compromise. And often if you want to be a specialist in London, you have to not only do your day-to-day -day job, but you have to upkeep something that's called a portfolio. And the portfolio encompasses things like research, teaching, publications, audits, quality improvement projects, all these extra things that you're, you're meant to do within your normal day-to-day -day job. But the do job of a doctor is so busy that you end up spending your free time, which often isn't very much, especially if you're working, you know, one in two weekends, one in three weekends, a night, a set of nights, you know, four night shifts every two or three weeks. It takes a huge toll on your quality time. And if then, when you have a, you know, a bit of free time, you want to spend it with your partner, with your family, with your friends, and instead of doing that, you're going to have to go back into the hospital to do these sort of hoop jumpy things, you know, stuff that doesn't really align with you, but stuff that you have to do to get to the next step. And what happened was I realized to get a competitive job in London, which is what I wanted to do. My whole family's from London, you know, my partner's from London, my, my, you know, my, my friends are from London, my whole upbringing has been here. I wasn't prepared to move to the outskirts of the country. So then if that's something I'm not prepared to do, then how do I maximize my portfolio so I have the best chance? And if you look at the competition ratios for anyone after FT, whether they're applying to GP, 
whether they apply to radiology or surgery or, or medicine like I did, is exponentially increasing, which means there are more and more people applying for the same number of jobs. And the only way you start differentiating these people is by really maximizing this portfolio. And it's not easy. So in, in my F3 year, I went and did a master's, a research master, which was really, really difficult. You know, you have already spent six years at uni to go then do another two years just to, it, it wasn't that it wasn't passionate for me, but it was also that it really, really um, helped with getting those extra points. And I think getting those extra points was a really huge thing. And I, I started to think, I'm not going to have to I'm gonna stop doing this. You know, I'm, I'm now looking at the next 10 years of my life where I'm constantly going to have to sacrifice quality time that I have doing things just to get to the next hurdle. And like we spoke about earlier, are you going to then become a consultant at the very, very end of this process? And is it then going to become better? But I'd argue probably not. I'd worked in some of the most central teaching hospitals in London and the, the professors who are smiling and, you know, they've worked their whole life for this. This was their passion project. It never really ends. If you want to be the top of the pyramid, you have to give everything away. And there's a saying in medicine that really has always struck with me that it's not really a job, it's a lifestyle. And I think that started to become really, really apparent to me that one, you know, you're not going to be paid very much. You're going to give a lot of your time away and you're constantly going to have to be doing all these different little things just to get to the top of this pyramid. Is that really worth it? Do you want to be 40, year old, 40 years old at the top of the pyramid, but possibly unhappy? And that is where I was like, actually, I have done all this. Yes, it could be a sunk cost that I've spent six years in med school, two years doing a master's, another year doing a postgraduate certification in medical education, like all this time building the CV, doing you know, countless amounts of complications and stuff, but is it making me happy? And going back to my 17 year old self, I cared a lot about the external validation, right? I cared about making my teachers happy, making my parents happy, doing a, a job that historically sounds very good. You're helping a lot of people. I didn't really care what me as a 17 year old person wanted to do, you know, but actually, I realized that I still have a passion for medicine, but the whole system, everything else that it encompasses, that doesn't make me happy. And the small five or 10 percent, that does make me happy. Maybe I can do it without committing my whole life to medicine. Maybe the things that I want to do, travel, spend time with family, friends, you know, buy a house, have a wedding, whatever it is. Maybe I can do that without having to sacrifice so much. Um, and that's probably where I started considering health tech. So just to take you back, I, I was in my F3 year, still building this portfolio to go into oncology, and I did a, a clinical fellow job. So a non-training clinical fellow job where I worked at, guys say Tom is in the oncology department, and I liked it. You know, like I said, I really enjoyed treating these cancer patients. I enjoyed the science behind cancer medicine. I enjoyed the, the treatments that we were offering. So, you know, for me, this was like, okay, I do enjoy this. This, is, this confirms that this is a part I want to go down. But what I did was I did that for six months. And for the rest of the six months, I was like, let me just have a little peek at what else is out there. Let me see if I, you know, what if I really value my quality of life? If I want to go to the gym every day, if I want to have all my weekends and nights free and I can have a good quality life as any, you know, mid 20 year old would want in London. So I worked, I, I reached out on LinkedIn to loads and loads of founders who are working at cool startups. And I was like, why don't I work for you? I don't care about the money. Let me just work for you. Let me just understand what I can do. And I, you know, I got a few offers and I eventually settled for a job at MediShout from, for six months before I went back into medicine full time. And I actually fell in love with it. I fell in love with it because one, it still, you know, was helping people in, in a sort of broad way. 
you're still within health tech, you're still using your medical insights to be able to help people. But it, it almost felt like all the benefit with, without much of a sacrifice, you know, that the pay was much better, that the quality of life was much better. And I wasn't having to be exhausted, burnt out. I wasn't so worried about getting you know, litigation. Like, what if a patient complains about what I've done? So for me, that started really selling it. And then the last bit of the transition totally out of medicine was how can I still fulfill that small amount of passion I get from helping a patient, using my knowledge and caring for a patient, but actually still have the life, the holistic life I want. And what I found was my training post was just not giving me much joy. I, I tried to do a 50-50 split where I spend three days working in a training post, working towards a career in oncology and three days with the startup at MediShout. And what I found was that the three days I was at MediShout was just making me so much more happier. And actually, if I do one or two shifts in A&E or in medicine throughout the month, I still you know, scratch that little itch of being able to help people, being able to be a doctor. And for me, being a top of the pyramid doctor, actually all that sacrifice that's needed to get there just wasn't worth it. And I've started to zoom out, you know, it's the next 10-year game, next five-year game, what am I going to do? Which game am I going to play? And I just didn't want to play the medicine game anymore. That's really interesting to know. That's, that's just, I think you've kind of encompassed everything that I'm thinking, to be honest. And as you said, you know, once you get once you get out of med school, you're doing your foundation years, once you get out of your foundation years, do F3, and then you do your training post, and then you become a consultant so many years later. And as you say, a lot of people say, right, well, you get, you know, good, good enough money once you become a consultant and then you get more freedom or whatever. But is it worth the amount of years, the amount of, you know, all the stuff you have to go through first to get there? And you do one thing and then you have to get to the next thing, and the next thing. It's like, why can't you just be happy and be doing what you want to do now rather than in so many years time? And I think that's, yeah, that's very interesting. Got lots of notes there. And I think anyone who's, you know, it potentially thinking about this is it's nice to hear someone else you know their their thoughts on it so thank you for that and I think the next question you know works quite well with it so do you feel that you could have just gone straight into med shower straight into health tech without doing medicine or are you still happy with what you did in the past or would you have rather just gone straight to health tech um I think it's really interesting I think there's always a thought process that when anyone actually leaves a training post, because what, what I did was I actually entered a training post, a competitive training post, and then withdrew from that training post. And I think that's quite rare, even though a lot of doctors now are thinking about leaving, they often leave when you know there's a correct time to leave. So at the end of F2 or the end of a certain training program, they don't tend to leave midway through a training program. As, as doctors, we're quite risk-averse people. Um, and... The, the, the beauty of what I was able to do was I was able to have both sides of the coin at the same time and almost able to have a look at what is the health tech life, what is the medicine life. And I think having that constant reminder of medicine and comparing it to health tech allowed me to make that transition. I think having not gone through that, personally, I wouldn't have made the transition. And then I guess the second part of it is the job itself. Could I have gone into health tech without doing a degree in medicine? I don't know. I, I, I really don't. I, I don't think it's impossible. I mean, there's lots of people that work in health tech that obviously haven't got medical records. Would they be able to do the specific job I'm doing right now? Maybe not. Or, you know, or maybe the fact that I've got clinical insights really helps with that job. And, um, you know, I, I help MediShout build products uh, that are going to ultimately benefit patients. And it's nice to know that I can come in with that. I know how patients should be treated sort of mindset. Um, 
I think probably what would have happened if I didn't go into medicine entirely, I probably would have gone down a different route. Um, you know, I, I would have figured out a different passion because I think I needed my medicine to really eke out that science passion, really find out what in medicine I like. At 17, I didn't know anything about oncology. I didn't know anything about experimental oncology or experimental treatments. And that's the sort of stuff I really like. I think I used uni to almost find what my true passions were. And now I'm trying to figure out how I can align that in real life. Um, and, and, you know, health tech might not be the, the end journey for me, but I think right now it, it allows me to have that interest in science, have that interest in helping patients and people, have that interest in healthcare, but also maintain that quality of life. And I think any decision now going forward is going to be a marriage between the overall life that I want to live, but also the passion of what I want to do as a job. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question entirely, but I hope it does. Yeah, no, I think I think that that helps because I mean, as you said, if you hadn't have gone into medicine, you might not have considered health tech at all, and then you wouldn't have done it, but you would have done something completely different. And it is interesting um having interviewed people like Grace Jimson. I don't know if you've heard of her, and she um obviously has Holly Health and she didn't do anything medical, she did business and did a lot of business things first. So it's like, well, if I for people who were kind of even earlier on in the journey thinking I do like health tech should I do this on the side or should I do it instead you know this kind of thing and they think is it is it do you have to do medicine to do it I think is, is not at all thing. I mean health to health tech is booming now right and I think it's something that if you have some sort of passion for you know wanting to help people maybe you've got a personal story or whatever it is you can definitely go into it um and I, I think you know medicine is not a prerequisite for going into health tech it just helped me you know if you've got x number of skills then this is these are your options and, and you know for, for doctors who want to leave me medicine although you know the whole world is open it tends to follow one of three or four pathways you know you either go into pharmacy the big pharma and work for like astrazeneca or whatever in their clinical trials unit because you can lend all that um medical expertise you go into management consulting and, and solve you know healthcare consulting projects because again you 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 lend you lean on your medical background or you go work for a healthcare startup because I think these are innovative and they're looking for doctors and and you, you know we, we talk a lot about transferable skills and I think you know doctors obviously do have a lot of transferable skills with we can communicate we work well under stress we can juggle lots of information and we can diagnose and create hypotheses and I think these are obviously going to be great in the business world but these are three areas where there's a clear route out there's a path that's been well trodden and I think that's probably what I've done. Yes, yeah. And I mean, if you've spent six years, five years, however many years doing medicine, you don't just want to chuck it away and do something completely different. Like you still want to use the stuff you've been working really hard to do. If it's not necessarily clinical work in the NHS, you still want to do something um, sciencey and medical. And so you mentioned a lot about MediShout and you work in MediShout. So what is that specifically? Yeah. Yeah, um, I think just one thing just to touch on before before I explain what MediShout is, I think you spoke about it being an X number of years of doing something and then you know you want to sort of pivot into something that's reasonably uh, similar. I think that's a, that's a mindset that a lot of people share and that's, you know, people that come to a crossroads would often want to leverage their background. But I also do think it's not a sunk cost um, in medicine. You know, even if you go do something totally different, if I go open a bakery or something, you know, I, I think what you'll find is, is people want to optimise for, for, for different things. You know, if you really want to optimise for like, what your background is and, and, and you know where to go but some people will probably be so burnt out by the system that they actually want to do something totally different and they'll find that they get to you know the early 30s or mid 30s and actually you understand that you don't have to have this sort of predefined route of life where you just go through one step by step and actually 
if you follow your passion, I think it's something you get taught in school, and you follow your passion, it's probably going to be better long term. And obviously, we don't tend to do that. We, we tend to like make safe decisions, and medicine is one of the most safest decisions you can make. But what I'm seeing a lot is people do make slightly more, you know, abstract jumps out totally, and, and they do totally different things. And I think that's probably going to become more and more of a thing where people are just really want quality of life so much better, and they'll find that yes, they could go into healthcare background, but they could also do something totally different. And it doesn't change them as a person, really. So I think it's worth bearing in mind for anyone at a crossroad. Um, in terms of what MediChat does, so the way I see hospitals is you've, you've got really two, two sides to a hospital. You've got everything that works um, to do with a patient, looking after a patient, the doctors, the nurses, the healthcare assistants, um, you know, all the blood tests. You've got that whole clinical side of the hospital. But you also need all the infrastructure to make a hospital be able to run all the operational side, you know, you need the transport that allows a patient to come in. You need all the lighting and com computer software all to be running efficiently so you can actually, you know, have that information. You need all the x-ray machines to be working so you can do all your diagnosis. Uh, you need all the, the food services, you know, canteen and, and the patient food services so that patients can be fed. Uh, you need security so that the hospital is safe and, and so on and so on and so on. And I, I think if you are building a hospital from the ground up, you probably end up in the same place where MediShark want to be. You probably have one system that looks after everything clinical so that doctors and nurses and the patients can interact and can make clinical decisions about a patient's condition and their prognosis. And then you'll probably have one system that looks after everything else, looks after how a hospital runs. But what you have in the NHS is you often have multiple systems trying to you know, feed into like, if, if you wanna book a patient transport, if you want to call some, call a department, you have a switchboard. If you want to book a taxi, you have a different system. If you want to, if a, if a toilet needs cleaning, you have a different system. If, if, if you want to order a specific piece of kit for an operating theater, it's a different system. And what you end up having is all these disparate systems, which don't really work together, but ultimately are all aligned in this umbrella of trying to make a hospital run operationally. And, and what, we're, what we're finding is, is it's really, really fine on the other side. On the clinical side, the hospitals are much, much more aware that they need one system that really looks after, you know, writing your patient notes, ordering your bloods, ordering your tests, um, and, and, and writing your discharge. You know, that whole end-to-end -end process of a patient journey and everything in between should all be under one system. But we're still so far away from that happening on the operational side, on the other side of the hospital. And that's what MediShout's doing. MediShout is building smart hospitals. You know, so it's a one app that looks after everything, a one-stop shop almost, that can report any operational issue. And, you know, we're, you know, we're growing quite quickly. We're in quite a few hospitals because, you know, the vision is great. And we just need to get rid of all these disparate systems, put them all together, either integrate all of them or just replace them entirely and build truly smart hospitals that have two working sides that work really, really well. And ultimately, like I've said, it, it just means that patient flow is better. You know, patients get treated better and more optimally. And what you'll find in most public healthcare systems is there's a lot of inefficiencies. And, and that's why health tech is beaming, because we're really trying to tackle these inefficiencies using all the other industries that move so much further apart. You know, it wouldn't surprise me if there's still there's, there's still lots of fax machines in hospitals. There's still lots of like really, really old software. And, and, and then we come home and we use you know, the most cutting edge technology. And hospitals are so, so slow at adopting new technologies. But um, it's a huge market. And I think, you know, MediShap are a great way to get in there. And I think that that's a really great summary because 
a lot of health tech things you hear about them or I hear about them and I'm just like what I don't I don't understand but that makes total sense that you want the hospital to run smoothly because you could have all the doctors and all the nurses but if the actual hospital systems don't run smoothly then you're a bit stuck and as you said anytime I talk about health tech everyone always says hospitals medicine are so slow to pick up the new advances and as you say you come home and use the the top of the range technology and then in work where you probably need it more is just so slow and so I think that's really interesting it sounds like a really good thing to do compared to these other random things that you could do which are really cool but that's like very practical isn't it that make that just makes total sense to me in smart hospitals you hear about that a lot and um I don't think I even know what a fax machine looks like but uh, <laughs> but you know yeah. Yeah, all this old technology that needs to be updated somehow Definitely. Definitely. yeah that's really really cool I love that and so with all of that I'm sure you've heard about lots of um the latest health tech innovations what would you say is the coolest or most recent thing that's really interested you I think once you get into the health tech sphere and the startup sphere, you you, you become much more attuned with what's going on around you. Um, it's not something that I, I follow very, very deeply, but I, I, I am very, very impressed by, by some of the startups out there, what they're doing. And I think, you know, when I was in medical school or when I was in, in, in college, startups in healthcare was not a thing. You know, you, you, healthcare was very much just you you're a doctor or you're a nurse or so on but it was there wasn't this whole sphere of healthcare where people are trying to innovate and people are trying to like you know personalize medicine and, and bring you know self-care tests point of care tests to people's homes and and trying to really digitalize everything I think this whole idea is so so infinite and I think for anyone looking to get into health tech like just have a look at what these startups are doing there is almost a startup for any idea you can conceive and you know, the, the, the easiest way to break into it, because some of these companies, when I read them, what they're doing, like sort of the reaction you had to when I spoke about Malaysia, they're just doing such cool things, such things that would probably be so mind-blowing, you know. You, there's, there's companies that, you know, have apps that can look into your ear because it just replaces all these things. It makes things really, really quick. You know, there's cancer, uh, cancer apps that basically any patient that has cancer is on treatment can obviously record their symptoms on a day-to-day basis. You end up with really personalised data coming out of all these patients. And, and so on and so on and so on and, and you know, every other day or every other week I, I get pinged or I hear about another startup that's doing something really really cool and and I think the area that I'm most interested in is personalized medicine you know I really like the idea that we're also very different and and how can we really you know optimize for the best people that we can be and the best healthcare that we can deliver but generally if you look on LinkedIn now the number of like health tech startups that are out there is just crazy and I, I would really encourage people to just be more aware of this space that is growing yeah it is it is really cool what people are getting up to and it, even if you're not in in medicine like as a pre-medical student you don't hear about you know the ins and outs of hospitals or all the things that need to be done because you just don't know about it and it's it's really cool to hear and you think yeah that actually makes total sense why wouldn't you do that but it's just something that isn't even in your like the problem you know these are all solutions to a problem and the problem isn't even in a lot of our minds so it's, it's just it's just mind-blowing a lot of it isn't it so that's that's really cool and so you know with the doctor strikes going back to that now we have the doctor strikes going on um this this week and you know con you know people talking about um not very good job satisfaction and pay and things like this so quite a general big question but what do you think the future of the nhs is with all of these things going on at the moment 
But I think this is a question that I find really difficult, to be honest. I think, you know, I have a lot of solidarity for my colleagues. I, I, it really is a very, it speaks to me very personally. You know, I, I see the reception of these strikes in, in the press. I, I see the reception on BBC. I see uh, the, the non-starting negotiations from the government. And, you know, what, what is the future of the NHS? Well, the way I try to describe, you know, what I think is happening in the NHS is, is, is the bathtub analogy. You know, you've, you've clearly got a hole where, where, where doctors are leaving, doctors are unhappy and, and patients are, are suffering. And instead of trying to plug that hole by, by improving the working conditions, improving the training pathways, reducing the competition ratios and improving the quality of doctors' care, they're just making the bathtub bigger, you know, and I, I think that's not that's not the right idea. When we hear about the news about new medical schools being started up, new apprenticeship programs and 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 you know, having you know advanced nurse care practitioners or you know, physician assistants and all these sort of things just to like increase the level of service provision in the in the thing, but they're not really looking after doctors and nurses and I think and even paramedics and ambulance staff and so on and I think the problem is that that hole is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger you can keep making the bathtub as big as you want but people are going to leave and I think what, what's going to happen is if, if, if you know if people don't feel happy in their jobs because burnout is at an all-time high morale when, when I go back I did a shift this weekend actually in the hospital and morale is so low and then people are looking for ways out and these are smart, intelligent people. They've been through med school. They've been through vigorous exams. They will succeed. And you can only batter them down so much because people will leave. There are options out there. And I think the problem is once you leave, people will find that actually my whole life is better. And that small bit of passion that they're probably getting from medicine can probably be, be relieved by doing a few shifts every month. You'll probably end up in a very similar place to someone like me where you know you still have a passion for medicine but is it really worth giving up every single thing i spoke to um it's a really personal story but i spoke i spoke to you know an end stage registrar who, who had gone through you know mid late 30s now and, and top of a year top of a year at med school top of a year at university got all the prizes done everything to a t and she said you know it was almost more expensive for her to send her kids to nursery than her to come to school uh, to come to work you know it would be cheaper if she just sat at home looked after her two kids because actually it was more financially uh, relevant and if you know and if she had just done a normal degree or you know a normal job she would not be in this position and, and why am I in this position you know I was top of my game academically I did everything right you know I, I, I ticked every single box I talked to every person and, and networked and networked and networked and like you said then at the end you know you're now in your close to your 40s you're now a consultant does it really get that much better well to be honest I don't know you know we live in especially in London we live in a very expensive city and you know, with inflation at where it's at and, and generally prices don't tend to come down ever like historically everything just gets more and more and more expensive so our jobs need to be able to satisfy that because otherwise there's a mismatch and and, and you're getting that mismatch with a cohort of very smart ambitious doctors and i think that's really sad i really hope that the strikes work i really hope the government listens i don't think asking for 35 percent is actually unreasonable at all i think it's actually just what is fair but, and then this is a big one, and, you know, given the economy that we're in, given that the government is in power, given everything that you know, they're going to consider, is it realistic? It's, it's questionable, it's difficult. Can we really keep prolonging our strikes? Because already we're starting to see resentment amongst you know, fellow consultants, amongst the press. Do we really want to tarnish our reputation? I don't know, but I guess this is the only way that they would answer. It's a very, very difficult time.
and I, I do have a lot of solidarity for doctors, but I think what probably will happen is if this doesn't get resolved soon, there's going to be a bit of an exodus of doctors, you know, Australia, New Zealand, health tech, management consulting, whatever it is, but people are going to optimize for their quality of life. Um, and I think the last thing to say is, is it's probably what stuck with me. It's not medicine. Medicine is not the problem. Medicine is a course for someone going to 17, not a problem, beautiful course. One of the most best courses you can ever do, right? You learn so much. It's an art and a science. It's six years and, and you get every bit of fun through that. It is one of the most amazing courses you could ever do. The system in the UK is difficult. And, and, and by, by no means I want to like, you know, hide that. It is a difficult system. I mean, that story you said is just so sad because, you know, you're top of your, as you said, top of the game, won all the prizes, you're doing everything right, you're, you're at the top, and yet you can't even, you know, properly pay for your kids to go to nursery. Like, it is, yeah. it's just really sad to hear and that you think, you know, if they'd known that it would be like that, they could have done something different or they might have something on the side. And it's just, yeah, that is a really sad story. Oh, it's just, it, there's a lot to that, there's a lot to unpack there. And I think you said about, you know, it is an amazing course and the actual course itself isn't bad. It's just the system at the moment. And also um, with the whole future of the NHS, people are leaving, people are leaving, consultants are getting angry, but then also people like me, pre-medical students, looking at these people striking, saying all the things they don't like about their job. You're thinking, well, why would I go into that? You're literally listing. Every I saw a post on LinkedIn where someone literally listed all the things they didn't like about being a doctor or about being a medical student medicine. And I commented saying, OK, so, you know, why would I apply to medicine? Just trying to find out. And they said, oh, no, no, don't let this put you off. And I was like, how how is that not going to put me off? You put all the negative things. And obviously some, you know, some posts are going to be positive, some posts are going to be negative. But how are these things and seeing the doctors so dissatisfied going to not put pre-medical students off? It's, it, I think people are going to leave now and people aren't going to be joining as much, which will be interesting. I said this to you before I called and I think, you know, like you are in such a unique position now because you're going to talk to people at all different parts of the spectrum and, and, and different backgrounds and, and you're going to get all this information. And I think you have to do what's right for yourself. And medicine, I have no regrets about medicine. I, I probably share that sentiment with 95% of people, you know, medicine, helping people, you know, seeing a sick patient and being able to treat them and seeing them through, there's probably no job on this earth that gives action that much satisfaction, or, you know, very, very few jobs. And, and, and that's why I still practice medicine. I don't want to lose that element of my life. But this is a 10-year game, a 50-year game, a 20-year game, just broaden your horizons because you know are you willing to sacrifice so much for something that is very difficult med school by no means is easy you know getting a training post in London is very difficult and I'm not saying you want to be in London but I'm just speaking from my experiences like if you want to be in some of the most world-renowned hospitals top of your game that sort of doctor which a lot of type A men you know students want to do that they want to be the top of the game a lot of a lot of people in my year were, you know, head boy, head girl, or straight A stars. Like they were very, very type A students. They're very, very good students. A lot of people have a huge ambition, and it's a huge mismatch when you realize how hard it is. And it's a bit of a dog-eat-dog -dog world because there's going to be always someone who's going to keep pushing you. And at some point, you get tired. At medical school, yeah, you know what? I'm going to get that distinction. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to be top of my year. At school, that was okay, you know. But at 30, do I still want to be spending all my time doing extra just to be the top of my game when... There's so many people fighting for that spot. 
it just gets a bit tiring. And, and all of this is just to get to the next step, to get to the next step, to get to the next step. And I think this is stuff that I never really thought about, never really had, and never really understood at 17. I think my biggest advice to you is take what I've said, because this is my story, you know, this is my true story. Take what you said from other people, but really figure out what is best for you and just play the long game. Yeah, that's that's really good advice. Thank you for that. Because obviously you've been through it, you've done it, you can see different people's perspectives. So thank you for that. And if do you have any last last advice to any pre-medical students who are, you know, seeing everyone unhappy or just because you're seeing people unhappy doesn't mean the grass is always greener. I think the grass is greener where you water it. I think it's a bit of a cliche, but it's true. For me, you know, health tech was greener, but only because I actually put one foot in. You know, and I think until you've explored that, you'll never really know. I don't think we should go into all these alternated careers like really, really. I think you know you have to really see what's right for you, um, and and you might find that actually medicine. I still do know a lot of doctors that really like what they do, you know, and for them, the money isn't such a huge factor because they're so passionate about what they do. They get so much passion from. For, for me, it was 5 or 10% of my overall life. For some people, it's 70, 80, 90% of passion from that job. And they can they, they understand the sacrifice that they have to do. And everyone is unique. I can only share my story because that passion was such a small part of it and I can get it from doing other things. But I have friends, close friends who, you know, are striking, fine, but really still love the job, you know, still love the job and will carry on doing the job and can't wait to be a consultant. And you do still get those people. And um, maybe I should put you in touch with some of those people just to give some balance. Well, yeah, I, you're totally right. And that's why I have the podcast really to highlight the good and the bad and everything. And we've had a lot of medical students, um, foundation year doctors, doctors who are very happy doing what they're doing and they love it. And it's good to have a balance and see people who, you know, did enjoy it like you, but decided actually, no, I'm going to do something else um, predominantly. And I think it's nice to have that balance. So thank you so much for your time. And um, yeah, it's been absolutely great to have you on the podcast. Brilliant. Thank you so much. That's all today from the Medicinity podcast. Thank you for listening and join us next week. And make sure to recommend this episode to any aspiring medics.